0: feel like I'm in high school all over again. I'm doing book reports once a week. I'm enjoying this. It is the dark side of the after show. I'm here with my good friend Sean, co-creator of this great program. Let the world know who we're going to be talking about today. And I'd say this is probably the most optimistic story we've dealt with so far.
1: Yeah, so for for the benefit of obviously people watching and listening, uh, if you've not already listened to the episode, then please stop right at this moment and go and listen to it first because there's plenty of spoilers in in this after-show episode. We're talking about the distinguished life and mysterious death of Zora Foley. The once world title challenger in the heavyweight division to Muhammad Ali Uh, should have had a title challenge earlier on in his career. We will discuss that throughout the course of the episode but it's a story about a guy who had a seemingly normal life throughout the whole of it. But it's more so the the demise of Zora Foley, which caused so many conspiracy theories for, for over 40 years, well over 40 years. And this is the first case that we've dealt with where we actually feel like there is a definitive answer to it. And there's, you know, there's nothing sort of left unsaid, really, with this particular one.
0: And I was writing up my notes like a true professional while we were talking. So I came back slightly late. But I would like to start this conversation based off of my own YouTube research from when we uh, listening to the the podcast. And there was a big Bill Anderson YouTube account called Death Tours. And there was a part of me that wanted to go on a deep, deep dive of big Bill Anderson's Death Tours because what motivates someone to create the Death Tour Thing, but looking (laughs) at where Foley passed away and the circumstances and really getting a visual gave me some context because I think the theme for me when looking at this and we're going to go through it to a degree but it felt like he was almost too nice he was a stepping stone he wouldn't hold his ground and oftentimes especially outside of boxing he was taken advantage of and I felt like of all the characters we've dealt with i felt the most sorrow empathy and compassion for him as a whole because of that trait
1: yeah i think i think that's the kind of sadness you take away from it not only the fact that he he died way before his time but the fact that you know in in boxing in a boxing ring really he was one of the greats and the unsung heroes of the 1960s you know he should have if you've listened to the story, guys, you know, you will have heard that he should have fought Floyd Patterson. He should have been fighting Floyd Patterson and Cus Amato did not want that fight to happen. Uh, and Cus was like that back then. And we did allude to a the a, a Cus Amato career profile that we did on Cus and the reasons why, you know, he, he kind of protected Floyd Patterson quite a lot uh, until the inevitable happened with him and Sonny Liston. But... You know, for Zora Foley, he should have had his shot at the world title against Floyd Patterson years before he fought Muhammad Ali. And when he did fight Muhammad Ali, let's be honest, was he at his best then? No. And I think Angelo Dundee said it best years down the line that, you know, if that Muhammad Ali of 1967 would have fought the Zara Foley, you know, uh, of say 1960, there would have been a different fight. He's not saying that, you know, Zora Foley would have beat Muhammad Ali, but what he's saying is there would have been a completely different fight and would have been a lot trickier and a lot harder for Ali and would have certainly showcased a lot more of his skills uh, and, and, and the true grit in the fight that we've seen from him later on in his career. But I felt quite sad that Zara Foley just didn't he didn't get the opportunity and it felt like he got to the point where he kind of become kind of the box, boxing, not a journeyman, but he was kind of like, you know, the guy who you have to face to fight the final boss on a game. He was like that guy. He was the guy that everybody had to get through to, to go and fight the world champion of, of that era, who, whomever that may be. Uh, and it felt, I felt quite sad for him in that respect, but it also felt like, he, you know, he was quite happy overall with his boxing career when it was all said and done what did you take away from it Luki? you know with, with his actual boxing career and and how he's you know how people perceive him now well in 2005 and this is the greatest start my second
0: time living on my own i lived in the bottom basement of like a house in berkeley california where there was like this grad student like mansion and I lived in the food cellar which basically probably at some time was where the workers lived and I lived it was really a unique situation because it was like I don't know I had to walk around the house I wasn't allowed to use the backyard it was like just this one quaint area I'm saying a whole lot of words to say I bought a boxing book because YouTube wasn't really it, I don't even think YouTube existed to my knowledge until the next year where I used it to look up skate videos. That I'd always wanted to see skateboarding videos. And Floyd Patterson was basically every single book I would buy that was under $3. Every book was about Floyd Patterson. So when we Floyd Patterson came up, I'm like, I guess in that era, those books were from the 80s. And the most compelling guy was to write about Floyd Patterson. But I was kind of burnt out on Floyd Patterson because... Floyd Patterson, in my equivalent view, is Mike Tyson without the power of Mike Tyson. So he did the Mike Tyson things, didn't have the power, runs into Sonny Liston. I was kind of viewing in this context, uh, Custi being like an Eddie Reynoso type figure, very powerful, very strategic. And my lasting impression of Foley from the Floyd Patterson not getting the fight is Demetrius andre in the modern world of boxing we all know he's a great fighter we all the the hardcore enthusiasts love him but then for historical context how do you accurately assess him and that's what i looked at with foley Is you accurately say he turned into a journeyman but his skill set sadly was not that of a journeyman so it's like one of these weird moments where in uh football in your country or basketball over here we don't have these type of things because athletic achievement gets to be Um, compared against the greats of your era in boxing you can easily avoid people and kind of ruin someone's legacy in a historical context
1: i mean you got to look at the fights he was involved in the fighters who he got in the ring with i mean that just says it all for me like you look at his resume alone and you think of that you think of the guys that are around today and you think half of these fighters today in the heavyweight division wouldn't go anywhere near some of the fighters that you know are uh, uh, of that echelon, you know the guys that that were feared, the guys that nobody wanted to step in the ring with, and the fact that Zora Foley didn't really care about that, and he, and he was happy to travel to do that, uh, it, it it sort of spoke volumes to me uh, about how how sort of respected you know he was within the boxing community, and it was just sad that again he never got his opportunity until 1967 until he fought Muhammad Ali, and I think by that point I've I've, I've said. In the, in the episode and I've said already here that I just think he wasn't at his best Any, I think he'd he'd already got his mentality at that point where it's like look you know I'm doing this for the money I'm doing this to to provide for my family yeah I love the sport but I think my chance has been and gone and that, that's kind of how I interpreted it at that point of his life and uh who who would have known at that time he was only going to be with us for another couple of years on the planet before before he'd eventually obviously his demise would be uh, very sort of suspicious for many many years uh, so but in terms of his boxing career then luki you know obviously you look at look what he what he did and what he what he actually achieved throughout the sport you know looking back now and having the benefit of hindsight and the benefit of books and internet research uh, how highly would you rate him how highly would you rate Zora foley now based on his ability not based on you know like what he could have done, but more so based on his ability that he displayed and, and the guys he did go on to beat in his career. I mean, to me, he feels like
0: the Frank Bruno tier. That's where I'd put him, like right wherever Bruno sits. he The thing in my notes I write is the man from the wrong era. He was a pure boxer in an era of greed, depression, and aggression. It's the Jack Dempsey's, the, the come forward, beat you up, Sonny Liston KO'd him. He was the pure Joey Maxim backfoot fighter in an era where boxing was stand in front of a guy and beat him up. And Ray Robinson had slowly started to change that perception of what boxing was. But I do think what hurts him in a historical context is his style was actually much more modern than the era
1: he fought in. Yeah, his style was definitely ahead of his time. I think, like, I know it's no, there's no point sort of fantasising about what he could have done in the 1970s or the 80s, but, you know, if, if you want to go there and you want to talk about that, you think, you know, how would his style have been effective in a different era? And I automatically think of the 1980s heavyweight division. And I think, you know, if he was only sort of 10, 15 years ahead of his time, you know, if he was in that era, he might have been more successful. He probably would have got more opportunity as well. Given the the politics of, of the nineteen sixties, and I think he was, I think he was um, a victim of the politics of the nineteen sixties as well. I think that was one of the other issues. Uh, it took him so long to get his his world title shot, and eventually, when he did get it, there was just nothing but respect between Foley and Ali, and, and I think that was quite evident evident to be displayed. And I said in the episode, and I'll say it again, if you've not watched that fight, Muhammad you know, Ali versus Zora Foley, there's an absolutely fantastic quality copy on youtube in in full hd in all its quality and it's great to see it and and i know Johnston mentioned in the episode that you know Zora foley comments really highly about about muhammad ali uh, and he sort of comments on how good ali was of his era and it just kind of makes you think like all these people who ever questioned ali's ability you know you're hearing it first hand from somebody who shared the ring with him how good he really was so you know, he was quite humble like that. Like he, he got defeated in the, in the seventh round, but yet he was he was still able to sit there and say, "Look, Ali is way ahead of his time. He's, he's a really good fighter. I can't see anyone beating him." And, and that's just the type of man that he was. He was very humble, very very distinguished, as the title said, and had, had so much sort of pride for himself. Uh, and he just did things his way. You know, there were certain things where he turned he turned situations down where he, he could have gone for them, and he, you know he did things on his terms during his boxing career in his life. And and that's what I kind of did like about the story was that, you know, he was a man that stuck to his principles.
0: Missed the button when I was coming back in, but it also to add context that that's Muhammad Ali before he had his leave of absence from boxing. So Foley was probably the unfortunate person that fought the best version of Ali ever, because that they say in theory, it's probably a, a tall tale, but from 67 to 70, that would have been Ali's peak. And honestly, we probably wouldn't even think of Ali on a different side if Joe Frazier hadn't have beaten him in 71 of March. So really, like Zola, Zora Foley fights Muhammad Ali. I thought it was interesting that he was one of the first people to call Muhammad Ali Muhammad. I didn't, yeah. Like in a historical context, I didn't realize in a lot of these fights we look at and going back in history, racism is a big part of the story. And it gets left out. And I feel like Foley's story, a lot of it dates back to the Joe, Joe uh, Lewis, where it's like all about how can I politically leverage myself because I'm a black man and there's this still undertone of people not wanting this black heavyweight champion that they can't fully control dating back to uh, Jack Johnson. So, I mean, I feel like that is part of the narrative here is Racism is very real in these stories, but often when we look at it from a historical standpoint,
1: especially as white guys, we want to take the racism out. Uh, racism was very evident. I think politics and racism are the two things that, that are feature prominently in, in Zora Foley's boxing career and his story. And you think about, he's got to be this poster boy for the white hierarchy. He's got to be this, this, this good black boy who, who basically adheres to the white man's rules. And that's kind of like what he was sort of subjected to. Fortunately, you know, he he, kind of just was happy to go along with whatever it was was going on, even though looking back on it now, you can tell there was a, a, a massive racism involved. The same with Joe Lewis, the same, obviously, with Jack Johnson. The difference was Jack Johnson just didn't give a shit. He was happy to do what he was doing and, and, and get away with it. I think the difference was with Joe Lewis, the same with him. You know, he was happy to adhere to the terms of being this, this sort of squeaky clean, squeaky clean guy outside of the ring. And Zora Foley was exactly the same. And he was happy to to sort of play that role. But it's quite evident, you know, from, from the accounts of the people that were there at the time that we, we spoke about in the episode, that it was just clear that they were just wanting to have somebody to be able to control and manipulate and, and steer towards wherever they wanted to steer him to. And when it got to the point where he became he becomes a little bit disengaged with his boxing career, disinterested, so to speak, with his boxing career, and he was doing it for other reasons rather than say the original reason he got into the sport, then they start to sort of vie away from him a little bit. They start to distance themselves away from him a little bit. And that just goes to show you they were only really ever there to use him for what they wanted him for. Um and, and it's sad. Again, I I keep saying it's sad because it is. And I feel like Zora Foley you know, when, when doing this episode and doing the research for it, and I found so much more about him and, and educated myself a lot more about his life, it was like, you know, this guy was one of the true contenders of the 1960s that just gets he gets forgotten about. He doesn't get spoken about because, you know, people only speak of certain individuals from that era and they forget about the, the guys that helped guys like Muhammad Ali, the guys that helped guys like the Sonny Listons of the era. If they, if these guys didn't have dance partners like Zora Foley, then would they have had as good a career as, as they had? Zora Foley was like the backbone, you know, of the heavyweight division of the 1960s for me. And while you were saying that, I was
0: doing editorial notes to come up with something, because you you make a great point. You need dance partners to be a legend. It's like how... For every Floyd Mayweather, you need to have the Miguel Codos and the Victor Ortiz's. But then as time goes by, people don't have that relationship with those fighters. But they're who made the fighters, the Zab Judas. So I don't know if you realize this. Zora Foley fought 668 rounds. Sonny Liston fought 268 rounds in contrast. And Muhammad Ali fought 4 or 548 rounds. So to just imagine from a standpoint that he fought more rounds than Ollie and Liston, and I'm sure we could come up with a list of like Joe Frazier, Ollie. We could make a list where he fought more rounds than a bunch of legends. Yeah. Pretty historically significant with the caliber of competition he fought. I'm kind of curious about the Henry Cooper fight. Did that have any significance in the U.K.?
1: It did for Henry Cooper. We did do a career profile on Henry Cooper. Uh, for for Henry Cooper, it was significant because obviously he he got his big fights off the back of his his fight with Ali, his first fight with Ali. When when he you know he when he damaged Ali and he, he dropped Ali and it caused this huge controversy and it was a big thing. Uh, victories, you know that 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 happened for Zora Foley in his career were ones that were significant for for Henry Cooper. You know, this was this was a huge way for him to to, to make his mark on, on the boxing world, and it's fights like these, and putting up good showings, and being involved in fights like these that help guys like Henry Cooper make a name for himself as well as as well as the Muhammad Ali incident when he knocked him down. It was having these fights against these well-known names in America that would say coming over to the UK. And and they were doing the business, and and that's the difference. You know, he was made; it was making a difference for for other fighters. So it weren't just making a difference for the guys like Muhammad Dali and the Sonny Listons of the world. It was making a difference for some of them guys that you know probably wouldn't always maybe reach the top of of the heavyweight division, but will always be spoken about. I'll always be a contender of the heavyweight division. I think that's kind of what the significance was there for for both of them men in that particular fight. I think, and also
0: what for Foley, what this conversation is dating back as well for me is often we look at pioneers or people that laid the groundwork as the top of the industry. Like, okay, let's find someone who's exceptional. They're a pioneer. And he was a pioneer in many ways. He just never got to the top of his industry. And you rightfully pointed out if Ken Norton and Larry Holmes were at the top, maybe he gets to the top, but he happened to have Muhammad Ali, Sonny Liston, Joe Frazier, and George Foreman as the heavyweights of his era. And let's be real. Would Anthony Joshua, Wilder, all of them, would they make it to the top of the sport in that division in that era? We don't know, but there, there's always going to be a tough division and there's always going to be guys who lay the groundwork for the future fighters and they just get stuck in the wrong era.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think Zara Foley probably epitomizes that comment, to be honest with you, when he's his boxing career. Uh, and I think... He's got a well-established boxing career. And I think if people you know, haven't had the opportunity to have a look at some of his fights, uh, that he, the very interesting fights that he's got, he, they've got some on YouTube. Go and check them out because they are really worth watching. You get to see how ahead of his time he is as well. And you think to yourself, this is a guy who's like... He fights like he's in the 80s, but he's fighting in the 60s, and that's what he reminded me of. He reminded me of a fighter from the 1980s. You know, he would have been really good during that era when you talk about the Larry Holmes, the Ken Nortons, you know, even even as far as Ernie Shavers. You know, you know, these are the types of fighters that I think would have been good fights for him or he would have had, I think, more of a, an opportunity with should he have been in the right sort of frame of mind rather than being you know like a heavyweight contender journeyman he probably would have been more along the lines of someone who really wanted to go for it and I think that's that's what happened I think boxing took a lot out of him by the time he got to Muhammad Ali and by the time he got to his first world title shot and that was very significant for me doing this story with him is that by the time he got to 1967 it's like you know he, he's probably at the point where it's just like it's all about the money i'm not saying it was but that's kind of how i interpreted it you know from his story was like you know he he's what he's doing now he's not so much for the same passions it once was when he first started it felt like it was more so to to, to provide for a living to, to to make a good future for himself which is what he what he planned to do
0: translation he was burn out the, the sport and the politics had, had used and abused him. And by the time he got to Ali, I think he was probably thinking about, how can I set myself up financially? How can I do things? Because his career was one where it, I think that at a certain point, he lost the childlike joy to boxing. And he viewed it as a job, like a car mechanic or any other job we have. The childlike joy, the, the super show, so to speak was gone for him. And I think it had left by the time he got to Ollie, like you said.
1: So what what's interesting is obviously how things, how things progressed from there for him. Obviously he becomes a, uh, becomes a car salesman from, from that point on, onwards. Once he leaves boxing, he, you know, he's not naturally the uh, most gifted of salesmen, but he works at it. He ends up becoming quite successful at it as time goes on. Uh, and and one of the biggest revelations from, from this episode that I, i never even would have thought about was that it turns out you know he was actually playing away from home and he seemed to have a really good relationship with his wife joella they'd been together since they were so young they'd had all the kids together and and ultimately he ends up playing away um well you know i can't really condone the fact that he's played away but it's the fact that what happens as a result of him playing away uh, and going to meet one of his friends which becomes very significant because that leads to his ultimate downfall and this is this is the part where I'm really interested to discuss with you because this is what, you know, if we would have done this episode 10 years ago, as Johnston rightly says at the end of our episode, if we would have done this 10 years ago, we would have been talking about this like, mm, this is a conspiracy theory. This is, there's, there's some evidence here to uncover. Fortunately for us, Marshall Turrell, who wrote the book on Zara Foley, did an absolutely amazing job of being persistent and coming up with the goods and being able to provide... I think a reasonable, a reasonable and conclusive explanation as to what happens to Zorofola.
0: Well, I think this is why I enjoy being a part of this program because it, it not just makes me have to think deeply about the sport and learn more about the sport, but you're also, you're conducting research. And I'm sure you and Johnston are going to have your own moment where you discover, un, unearth something because you guys do extensive research and you really work hard at this. And this is why I try to bring as much knowledge as I can do to it because I know the research you put in, but I appreciate the fact that you guys did it now because now there's a, there's an ending to it. And we, you, as well as I know, not a lot of people read anymore. So at least bringing an audio format to it gives someone a conclusion a little bit deeper than a Wikipedia, uh, three sentence thing, but why don't you set the stage and lay out kind of the untimely because i i have in my notes wth the unpopular what the hell because that's basically (laughs) what what it was it was it was just it had all the makings of kind of like an la confidential movie-like setting of just i remember um oh i'm doing that thing everyone hates when you do where i forget the guy's name but there was a character in mash i want to say An old TV show that was found at a roadside motor lodge kind of killed and it kind of took me back to watching an entertainment tonight episodic program of that like that was my vision of this crime scene was that me at nine year old nine years old looking at that but set the stage and lay down the fabric for what exactly happened here and was his ultimate demise.
1: So, what I alluded to a couple of moments ago was about the fact that he was playing away from home. So, he was having an affair with a lady named Anne Young. And a certain individual comes into the picture at this point of the story. Uh, this is the name of Arties Broom. Now, Arties Broom is someone he's been friends with for a long time. Someone who uh, Zora Foley's son described as a bit of a hanger on. And they were Zora Foley's son's words. I think it was Robert Foley that said that. Uh, he was a bit of a hanger on. However, you know, Zora seemed to be really good friends with him and, and his wife, and they decided to go to what I believe from recollection was a motel. Uh, I think it was the Sands Motel they went to. They all went up met to meet up there for the weekend, uh, having a little bit of a relaxing time away. And what happens is they, they, you know, they come in late, they check in quite late to the hotel. Uh, they decide they want to go for a little bit of a late night dip in the swimming pool on site. Um, something that we were able to to establish uh, when doing the research was whether or not there were actually any sort of lighting around the pool at the time because that was quite significant to me when when thinking about the scene and picturing the scene. So there's many different versions of this story but they all come to the same conclusion really which is Zora Foley and Artie's broom uh, are around the pool. Uh, They're either in the pool or they're around the pool uh, They're having a bit of meck mocking around, probably showing off in front of the uh, in front of the ladies that were there, uh, and ultimately Zorofoli slips on the edge of the pool. Uh, this is one. This is one story. He slips on the edge of the pool. He lands in. He hits his the back of his head uh, off a cement divider, which divides the adult side of the pool and the children's side of the pool. He hits his head off the back of it. Uh, the, the, the blow was so significant that it actually took his life. Artes jumps in, pulls him out, gets him out. Uh, the hotel clerk comes along, says that he can see three separate wounds, um, which we'll, I'm sure we'll dive into that slight conspiracy there uh, in a few moments. But ultimately, that, that blow was so significant that it actually took the life of Zora Foley at the age of 41 all through for a little bit of, of, of the messing around a genuine accident happened. And, and I think where the conversation comes into it for us is there were obviously different accounts of what happened. The hotel clerk had their account of what happened the in, in terms of what, what they seen on the site when they got there. Then you had uh, Dorothy broom, who was obviously the wife of, of RT's, who who gave an interview years later, um, her interview years later could have been quite sort of convoluted, diluted from the time because had, so many years had passed. And she, she said that it actually do in the pool at the time. So first of all, he slipped off the edge of the pool. Now he was in the pool when the incident happened. And then there's a story that he actually dives into the pool and hits the back of his head. And then there's also a story that artes actually shoves him into the pool because they reckon that he was actually having an affair with Dorothy behind the other person's back, and Young's back, who, who he was already having an affair with, behind his own wife's back, and the final, the biggest conspiracy theory, which I think kind of get dis, gets dispelled, is the fact that there were there were known mob families in and around that particular area where they were living at the time that were in all sorts of, of, of turf wars going on, and that actually, even though Zora Foley didn't have any links or affiliations whatsoever with the mob, apparently two two mobsters were 10 and they killed him so there's many different variables to, to how things go down here what do you think uh lukey when you when you first listened to it because i felt like we kind of took people on a bit of a a teasing journey all the way up until the end until we gave our opinions on it
0: i feel first off i'd like to say while you were breaking that down there like in my property, there was the creepiest noise ever. I'm in an isolated place and it sounded like a motor of a car was outside and I'm somewhere remote. So part of me was like, do I go outside and see if someone's there in the middle of this pot? So wasn't full, full on because I was doing safety check first in my brain. But what I think is typically in these situations, our mind goes to the darkest places, the most crazy places, but the truth is typically the most obvious one. And I do think it was an accident, but I do think because boxing is such a seedy red light district sport, it's so easy for us to think conspiracy, think the mob because of the era and not just think, you know, maybe it was just an unlucky circumstance and a bad decision.
1: Yeah. I think we kind of came to the conclusion that we think it was an accident. I think there was, there was too much actual evidence that was pulled out from the police reports by Marshall Terrell, and from the coroner's report as well. Bearing in mind the coroner's report was not able to be pulled out in its entirety until 2014. And that's how many years after the fact this happened. What was it? 1971, 72. This happened. And yet all these years later, Marshall Terrell, with this nagging thought in his brain decides that there's something not quite right. There's something I want to get a bit of closure on here. And he manages to get not only police reports, but he manages to actually get the coroner's report. Which, when you piece that all together as part of that jigsaw puzzle, it really only leads you to conclude that there was a genuine accident here. Whether it was horseplay, whether he genuinely just slipped, whatever the actual event that occurred, this is for me it was definitely an accident. There's no two ways about it. What I mean, at first I was thinking. You know, was was Dorothy covering something up? Was she covering something up for RTs? RTs, unfortunately, weren't able to be interviewed because he passed away in the 1990s. So we were able to get anything from him. Uh, Dorothy was still alive, obviously, when the interview was done by uh, by Marshall Tyrrell. He did try to contact Anne Young, but wasn't able to get anything back. So, you know, he did a lot of work into it, and the, a lot of credit does go to him more than more than us, really, because all we've done is brought everything together as a whole story. What he did was the real investigative journalism. He went away and actually went through hundreds of biker reel films to be able to find the police reports that were published and he was able to then get the right interviews with the right people to establish what had actually happened on the night and it's the eyewitness account and it's the police report and the coroner's report i think them three things for me told the story and in in its purest way which was that you know whichever way it actually panned out this was an accident that happened uh, a sad accident and it led to the untimely demise uh, of, of a great
0: yeah, I mean, I think that the, if we think about this, like we are there, right? So if, if this guy, this big heavyweight guy's doing whatever he's doing, he slips and falls, we're going to go into shock, panic, and self-preservation. So it's like, how do we not get arrested? How does anyone believe us? And I think if you work back from that type of thing, of course, no one's going to want to say, hey, man, he slipped, he hurt him, because who's going to really believe that? So the way this story got became a myth and the way it trickles down, it makes sense that that's the way it happened because no one wants to come out and say it because everyone's going to be
1: nervous about their their freedom. Yeah, I think so. I think that's what I was kind of getting at in the episode was that you know, even if there was any type of sort of small cover up going on between sort of Dorothy Broom and Arties Broom and, and obviously Anne Young, if there was any sort of small cover up going on, maybe Arties pushed him in by accident and he's fell in or he's just slipped himself. Whatever the actual outcome of, of what happened from the eyewitness, only they will know what happened at the time. But for me, it was it's kind of like you do take yourself to a place where you think, you know, these people did they just panic? Did he just panic at what happened? Was it a push? Did he mean to push him in? All of a sudden, then he starts to think, oh my God, he's going to get arrested for the murder. When in reality, it was an accident. And and all them sort of thoughts start to go through your brain. You start to try and rationalise them. Um, People in a panic do different things. It was very interesting to get the different reports. I think that's what made it interesting. But again, I can't stress enough how the evidence was enough for me to really for it to be an open and shut case. And, and if that evidence wasn't there, if that evidence was, was not available, and I think we'd still probably be theorising over it, and it's only because Marshall Terrell who's also a resident of Chandler, where Zora Foley comes from, he was able to put that together and he was able to put a conclusive stamp on, on this story. And the reason we wanted to do this story was because it, it had been a myth for so many years. It had been a theory for so many years that certain things had happened. And I don't think many people know about the the actual ultimate evidence that's out there. And And Marshall did do a book, and it's a great book, by the way, The Distinguished Life and Death of a Gentleman Boxer, Zora Foley. Absolutely brilliant book. Now, not everybody's read that book. Not everybody's had the access to that book. And I think doing an audio format like this and doing this story brings to light how how decent of a man Zora Foley seemed, but also puts to kind of bed, you know, an end to these conspiracy theories and really sort of gives a a closure for anybody that is a boxing fan that kind of feels like we did really beforehand, which was that Zora Foley died in very mysterious circumstances.
0: Yeah. I've, I've actually like the past couple of days, I've been struggling with grieving because I've lost a couple of people and I saw a parallel between my aunt Mary and Zora Foley where like they were both just very decent people who didn't get to really finish the way they should have with the way they lived. because typically when we do Zora Foley type characters, it's like Randy Turpin, where it's like when they pass away, there's kind of a shrugging of the shoulders where it's like, OK, we kind of saw this one coming with Foley. I feel like there was an underlying feeling of that was a decent guy we kind of wish that he was still going and maybe part of part of the folklore is people did like him and they didn't want to believe that it was just an accident that killed him. Like maybe it was part of the grieving. I say all that to start with the grieving is it's hard for me to accept that I've lost some of my loved ones and they just passed away that it, that it was that I want to believe it's something fantastical because that's part of the love and the grieving for me. I don't want to believe it's just mortality.
1: I, I think that's probably a good way to to describe how certain people's feelings and emotions can come into play with with certain stories like this. And obviously, you know, unfortunately, we all have to lose some someone at some point in our life. And sometimes you do kind of feel like you are robbed of of many years of, of these individuals' lives. It's, I mean, it's happened to me. It's happened to you. It's You know, we, we all have to go through this process at some point or another, unfortunately. And the people around Zara are exactly the same. They all have to go through that process of, you know, especially his children. His children must have felt like, well my dad can't have died just in an accident. There's no way my dad could have. Not only are they getting over the fact that the dad's died, but it comes out that his dad's actually playing away as well. That will have obviously come out that he was with another woman. Whether whether Joella knew about that is, is, an, is another question. But, you know, the fact that his dad's not only playing away, but he's he, he's died in mysterious circumstances, or what feels like mysterious circumstances, I can't imagine the sort of grieving process that they've been through, that they had to go through growing up because surely if it was me and that was my that was my sibling that was my parent i don't think i would have wanted to have believed that's how he died you don't want to think that a six foot two heavyweight contender heavyweight title challenger against the great muhammad ali you know, is, is reduced to a guy that slips and falls in a pool and dies. You don't want to think like that. You think of people like going out on the shield. You always think about these guys going out as, as fighters. Even Muhammad Ali, even all the way up until the end of him in 2016, as frail and as old and as ill as he looked, you've just always seen that sort of glimmer in his eye that, you know, you knew who he was, you knew what he could do at one point. Nobody likes to believe that with, with guys that, you know, unfortunately, guys and girls that pass away untimely. We want to believe it's something else. And, and that's the way I think our brains rationalize it but I think you've, you've made a good point and I kind of you know hope that people are able to after this episode you know really sit down think about it and think you know actually Zora Foley, great great fighter of the 1960s really sad ending but yeah it was an accident it, it wasn't mysterious it was actually an accident and I think the evidence and the, the facts are there to prove that now rather than uh, people being able to sit and a conspiracy theory over it. I think people still will. I think there'll still be people out there and both me and Johnston agreed that there'll still be people out there with the tinfoil hats on that'll sit there and say no, nope, I don't believe that. It was a cover-up. All three of them, Dorothy, Artis uh, and Anne Young, there was a big conspiracy between the three of them. There'll always be people out there that'll say that. I mean, I know some of some of Zorofoli's family did feel like it, it wasn't just an accident, but I think the evidence proved it
0: denial is the greatest drug i feel like denial has this ability to to make us believe or and i think that the issue with this is maybe the children or the family didn't know this affair was going on so on top of the death now here's this thing and that's the other hard part about life right there's a lot of great aspects to you there's a lot of great aspects to me but there's some really terrible I shouldn't say terrible, but there's some not great things about me that I try to improve all the time. And imagine if I were to pass away and then you saw one of my biggest flaws along with the death. Then you got grieving and you're looking at one of my biggest vulnerabilities, one of my biggest flaws. We see it all the time when someone dies in maybe a DUI or a vehicular manslaughter where you see that they had alcohol issues and they've passed away or they've killed someone. And it seems to heighten the trauma because it's hard to just say, man, that was a good person, but they dealt with demons unless they're a deeply troubled person to the world. I think it's hard when someone's able to hide it when that comes crashing down.
1: So ultimately, now you've had a chance to digest everything that's gone on with this story. Where does everything sit in your mind with with Zora Foley in terms of what you knew about him, what you know now and, and how you, how you perceive it all now, now how you perceive him as a, as a fighter, as a man uh, and, and how you perceive what happened to him at the end. Uh,
0: how do I unpin myself? I pin myself. I, Oh, there we go. Um, how do I perceive him as a man? Well, I mean, I perceive him as one of the best, fighters of his era kind of like an heiress landy lar i mean i had my pro equivalent that my little segment that i kind of made for this show and i kind of viewed him as chris bird so that's the way i kind of looked at him as he was a less accomplished chris bird a guy who If he was fighting on television, maybe you and me wouldn't be excited, but we'd respect him. He's a respectful. I'm just viewing him like literally as Chris Bird. Chris Bird was respectful. Always showed up was maybe a little undersized box guys breaks off. Sometimes he'd lose, but you never really left with a bad feeling about Chris Bird. And I think that that's the easiest way for me to look at Foley. (laughs)
1: it's a good comparison I think it is a good comparison uh in, in in that regard because obviously you think of Chris Bird and you think of a guy who was quite small for a heavyweight and I think that's one thing we haven't mentioned that was mentioned in the story is that he never he never tipped the heavyweight scales he would have always been a cruiserweight so technically he was always fighting heavyweights he was a cruiser always fighting heavies all the time I mean, I know some cruisers do move up and have become successful. Evander Holyfield, David Hay, Alexander Usyk, for example. They're the three standouts that have moved up and become really successful throughout the years. But Foley technically, is a cruiserweight. You know, he would have been a cruiserweight if that that you know division would have been around then. So he wouldn't have been fighting these guys. He would have been fighting guys, um, probably more so the light heavyweight guys of the time. He would have been looking at some of the fighters of that era. So maybe... Again, it's if buts and maybes. But if he was fighting a cruiserweight, without a shadow of a doubt for me, he probably would have been a world champion. I, I can't imagine him not being a world champion in the cruiserweight division. But you think about the guys he's getting in the ring with, and and they're always getting in the ring on the night, and they're always heavier than him. They're always tipping the scales bigger than him. Uh, some of them have got even bigger, bigger natural physiques than him, uh, natural physical advantages than him. But yet he was still able to achieve what he did achieve in his career, which was to to, to go through the, them fights and and be a title challenger and title contender for for so many years, and and yet you know look at look at us speaking about him now, and we're still speaking about him and still have so much respect for what he's achieved in the sport and what he did in the sport, and it's quite obvious to the natives of Chandler that he, he'll always be a very well respected man in in boxing circles and any boxing historian will always speak about what Zora Foley brought to that particular area for the heavyweight division. And and you speak to anybody, any any really well-respected boxing journalist who's a boxing historian, who's been doing it for, say, 30, 40 years, there's many of them still out there, they will probably tell you how, how good of a fighter Zora Foley really was. It was just that he was in an era where he was among some of the greatest of all time, arguably the greatest of all time. Yeah, if he would have been a cruiserweight, could he have achieved more? Absolutely. Absolutely. I just I just kind of look at it like, you know, I'm really happy that we've done this story on Zora. I'm really happy that we've brought uh, the attention to, to, to Zora Foley in, in more, than, more than just a positive light. Yes, there obviously are negatives at the end with his demise. But I feel like we've done justice to, to not just, you know, the way things ended for him, but also the way his life was as well. Yeah, for me,
0: like the bird comparison is the easiest way for me to think about, because like imagine if Chris, you make fight night video game champion and you put Muhammad Ali in with Chris Bird. Like Chris Bird is probably not going to win the fight, but he's going to be respectful. And I feel like that's the way I because I, I go back and I can look at the fights, but I can't add the context. That's the way it helps with me. I appreciate you doing this episode. We got to do who would play him in a movie. My my comparison would be Forrest Whitaker from Panic Room. That Eric of Forrest Whitaker um, from the David Finchner movie Panic Room. That would be my first ballot because I feel like Forrest Whitaker's character acting, a lot of squinting, a lot of like compassion in his eyes. That's
1: who I want Zora Foley to be in a movie. Uh, for Zora Foley, I think there's quite a few. There's quite a few good guys, actors out there that I think would would probably fit the bill. I think, you know, if I'm going really sort of, you know, high batting here, high pitching, I think I'm looking at, you know, even though Denzel's already done the Hurricane movie, I think Denzel would have played a good Zora Foley as well. I think he'll have encapsulated the, the, the era, the time that we were in um i think there was a michael j white was another one i don't know he played tyson in the very early tyson film that was done uh, i think it was in the mid to late 90s they, they did that film i think michael j white would have played a pretty good uh, zara Foley as well and i think if you think about some of the uh, the the more sort of current actors uh, i think there's, there's there's quite a few of them out there that i think i would have um I would have loved to have seen i think the british idris elba british idris elba i think he would have done a good job of zara foley as well i think you've got to look at the sort of guys that uh, and what on the way they can portray these characters and i think all of all, all three or four of them and the forest Whitaker included in that i think would have played brilliant parts of zara foley and they would have been able to tell uh, a good tale with him so yeah that they're they're a couple of who i would think uh, would play zara yeah,
0: I mean, I just, it's almost incredible that there hasn't been a ma- movie made about him because it feels like this would win an Oscar or be nominated because these are the stories people gravitate to, a largely unknown legend who one good, well-made movie makes them very important and sit in folklore. So I feel like any movie executive, if you want to get kind of goodwill and get an artistic director and make the Zora Foley story, because I feel like this would be like... um. Very on-brand
1: for right now. Yeah. No, it would. It would. I think I think it's a shame that nobody's done it. Like you say, it's a shame nobody else has done it. Again, which is why we've done something on it. We felt like we needed to put these stories out there about guys like this who... Uh, uh not not remembered as as well as what this should be and he, yes it's a darker side of boxing yes it's an untimely demise but it also brings to light a really good side to a, to a guy in that era who we've who we've spoke about quite quite highly of in this episode and i'm i'm quite happy that we've gone for a bit of a a lighter week for this episode it has a bit been a bit lighter than the first in the first three episodes uh, but it's only one week off from from the sort of really crazy stories because Next week, next week is a a story which I'm very excited to be telling you. A next story that's got so many stories wrapped within it. We're we're going to be talking about Mitch Blood Green next week and his. I'm story. pumped. Is I'm, this is my feel
0: spot. During COVID, I watched his fight with Tyson probably ten times. The video package. I I didn't even know this is coming. I'm just you get sh- this is sheer childlike joy are we was me at one time called mean mitch green
1: as well mean mitch green yeah yeah before he decided to change it because of his uh, uh, affiliation to to the bloods and obviously the the gangs the bloods and the crips uh, so we're uh, we uh, there is other reasons why he calls himself blood which we'll go into in that particular episode but i mean it's mitch not Wood that really- hard
0: to tell like like there's a, like you know what i mean like it, you got like a guy that looks like Tukey williams like 6 foot 5 buff And his nickname is blood. It's not because he likes to give blood to like, there's probably some undertones that are street undertones. And this is, I would assume the advent of gangs being kind of formed in America coming out of the black Panther party. Like I haven't done any research, but I'd imagine this is like right when the crack era is hitting a lot of like black kind of uh, unionization of poor communities kind of rallying together or kind of getting dismembered through drug addiction. And I think correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't want to step on next week's show, but that would probably be part of the story. Mitch
1: green surfaces out of this
0: destruction.
1: Well, this is what everybody's going to have to tune in to find out is uh, what, what story are we going to tell about Mitch blood green, the most famous story, which is, is probably not uncommon to anybody, but the story of the fight outside dapper Dans with Mike Tyson. Um, we've got a good few different perspectives on that particular story. So if, if anybody really wants to know what a definitive is or they want to make their mind up about what really happened that night, then what we present in that episode is, is factors from different people, including Mitch himself, including Tyson himself. So we're really going to get a, an inside perspective as to how that actually went down. Uh, we've got in, incidents involving him turning up at press conferences, in the middle of press conferences. And I'm laughing because I know what's coming up for everybody. And I know that when people listen to this, you'll think... Bloody Al Foley and Mitch Blood Green are completely just worlds away.
0: So I am googling him to make sure that he's not still alive. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm start like I'm not gonna lie, I'm starting to get a little nervous. I'm not that nervous because I'm not in public, but we're going into people that are kind of crazy dudes that are in real life. But we're not disparaging anyone, so it's not that big of a deal. But I am pumped for next week mitch green episode i'm
1: gonna be sitting taking notes i'm excited it's really gonna be a good one guys and and i know what you're saying Lukey. and i know that people have asked these questions to us before when we present the show it's like well what do you feel about speaking about people that are, are still alive or, or still are with us? And it was like, well, at the end of the day, like we've always said from day one with this series, we're presenting factual information. We're presenting information from other people that have been around these individuals. We're talking about accounts of people that are well-known. We spoke about Ike Abeabuchi last week and the accounts of Ludie Bella, people that are still very prominent in the boxing world today. And it's the same with Mitch Blood Green. There's a lot of stories from a lot of people uh, that are that are surrounding Mitch Bloodgreen, uh, words that have come out of his own mouth even. So for 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 us to worry about Mitch Bloodgreen coming breaking down that door behind you, I wouldn't worry so much about that. I'd I'd, I'd be more sort of wondering, you know, what the reaction's going to be when people hear about all these stories and and how they're going to perceive them and and what their opinions are of him and what they already think about him. Have they got their own formed opinions of him? I'm pretty sure most will have. But after listening to this next episode, I think you will find that there is actually a lot more to this individual, uh, a lot more interesting stories, put it that way. Well, I am pumped. I can't wait to get the episode.
0: I, this is going to be one where the minute I get it, I'm going to record it. And I honestly think I need to be more concerned about like this engine that's revving around my property in like rural, wherever I am, more so than Mitch Green, because I think that's more pressing to my life and safety right now, though I'm sure I will be okay.
1: It's been a pleasure. Lukey, as always, thank you so much for being a brilliant host, and thank you to everybody for listening. If you want to follow us, you can follow ITR Boxing, you can follow Darker underscore side underscore pod and BTR Boxing all across social media. It's been a pleasure. We talked about the distinguished life and mysterious death on this episode of The Incomparable Zorofoli.
0: Love talking with you, man. You're the best.